appreciate that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 6. While you're going there, just want to remind you again of next Sunday. Next Sunday is uh, July the 29th, Pastor Wiggins' last Sunday. Here is our, our senior pastor, not necessarily his last Sunday ever here or uh, ever preaching here. We, Lord willing, as God would allow for him to come back, uh, we would love for him to come back and uh, preach and continue to do ministry as he plans to do, but do it here too. So uh, we, we hope by the will of the Lord to have an ongoing relationship, um, obviously, personally, but even ministry-wise, as he continues to preach faithfully God's word. Proverbs chapter 6, um, what, what, the plan, uh, what my plan is tonight is uh, not to preach all of chapter 6. Chapter 6 has... Uh, three primary sections in it, uh, at least the first section has three, three sections, uh, verses 1 through 5, you can see Solomon's uh, thoughts on, on money or debt that he's talking to his son, the next few verses talk about uh, slothfulness or laziness, and then the verses that we're going to look at tonight are verses 12 through 19, and then verses 20 to the end, he deals with adultery, which I think we uh, dealt with in chapter five, so we'll probably leave it leave it there uh, for for the time being. But um, unity, and uh, primarily this, you could say verses twelve through nineteen are are, are, are giving us some thoughts on, on unity or the the threat to unity. Uh, unity is in short supply these days. It seems right. You don't have to to uh, be too aware of what's going on in the world, uh, what's going on in America. Uh, to, to recognize that. Uh, it's no secret that our current political climate in America is uh, considerably less than unified. That might be putting it mildly. Uh, we have divisive politicians with personalities and agendas. We have partisan pundits and platforms who seek to stir up their bases. And uh, that goes both ways, right? That's both sides of, of the uh, proverbial aisle, if you will. Uh, each, each side seeks to do it, and division ensues. Uh, besides politics, um, many of us, if not all of us, have experienced uh, the reality of relational conflict. Whether that's at home, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in a church setting. Uh, we've all had the marks of, of what it looks like to have conflict. Right? What it looks like to deal with this idea of disunity. Well, in chapter 6, Solomon is warning his son of, of a number of things. And we get the, the, the six things the Lord hates here and the seven, the abomination. We get that part. But he is speaking uh, about, about unity, about disunity among, uh, among the brethren or among the brothers or the family. And uh, we here tonight, right, our, our practical application is the unity of the family of God. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at, at verses 12 through 19, and we're going to see two descriptions that he gives. One in verses 12 through 15, and one in verses 16 through 19. One is of the worthless or wicked person, and the second is a, a list of what the Lord hates. And we find seven things listed there. Now, that is certainly not to meant meant to be an exhaustive list, right? God, God hates more, more than those six things uh, or seven things. 
uh, but it is it is meant to um, emphasize some things for our consideration. These descriptions, as we will see, are connected. They're they're not two separate things. They're they're two descriptions, and they're connected with re- repeated vocabulary. We'll see it in a second, but you're going to see the word speech, and then you're going to see uh, breathes out. You're going to see the word tongue, the word eyes, the word feet, the word fingers, and then the other description, the word hands. You're going to see the word heart. Let's read these first four verses. Follow along as I read. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes out with crooked speech, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. The first description we have tonight is the description of the worthless person or the wicked person. Solomon calls this person by both words. In a different translation, you might see the word scoundrel and villain. That's not a, maybe not one of our normal translations that you might have. In the Hebrew, this word worthless means without benefit, without profit, or without use. That's what Solomon is saying of this man. There's no value in this guy. This guy is beyond, right? This New Testament word, uh, this word comes into the New Testament as a name. And the name shows up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul is writing and he says these words, What accord has Christ with, anyone? Belial. That's a name. It's a name given to Satan. But it's from this, this Hebrew word, meaning worthless. Uh, Belial is a name for, for Satan used for his characteristics, his, his wickedness or his worthlessness, his treachery. And it also stresses his activity as an opponent of God. Right? So Belial is, is where we see this show up into the New Testament. I think this, this also reveals why God hates these things. Because as we will see in the next description, verses 16 through 19, um, they do not correspond with the character of God. Uh, These are things that correspond to the character of Belial, of Satan himself. When we read through that list of things, crooked speech, winks with his eyes, perverted heart, we get into the the things that he hates. You're going to see those things a little more clearly as, as things that could be so identified with Satan. This threat to unity, this wickedness, that is the sowing of discord, is not passive. Uh, some sins seem to be passive, right? They, they're, maybe they're sins of, of omission, right? They're sins that maybe we, we, we should do something, but we, we didn't do it. Um, sowing discord is not a, a passive sin. Rather, it is an aggressive sin. It's a threat that is actually intentional. H- how so? Well, there are... There are several intentional acts that he lists for us here in verses 12 and 14. And they have a significant outcome. Look again at verse 12. With crooked speech. Some of your Bibles might use the word perverse. This is, this is a deceitfulness. This is trickery. This is treachery. In chapter 4, Solomon writes these words. Put away from you crooked speech. 
put devious talk far from you. One commentator says this, that this literally means falseness of mouth. And he goes on to say that in Proverbs, the mouth reflects a person's character. So this wicked, worthless man has crooked speech. He goes about with crooked speech, with perverse or deceitful speech. He winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. Now, the exact understanding of what is, is going on here might be kind of unclear. But from the context, we can at least understand this. It involves deceit. Right? It involves signs or, or, or signals to, to, in order to deceive, uh, to avoid detection. There, there's, an intentional, there's an intentional desire or interest in keeping something uh, covered to deceive someone. We can see that this wickedness pervades all of the members of this man as it lists his eyes, his feet, his fingers, making him what Romans chapter 6 calls using his members as instruments of unrighteousness. And Paul invites us to make our members instruments of righteousness. Here in Proverbs 6, we see an example of a wicked man who's using his members as instruments of unrighteousness. May it not be so among us. He goes on in verse 14. It says, with a perverted heart devises evil. He's intentionally making plans. He's devising. He's, this, is, this is on purpose. This is contriving evil to others. That's what's happening here. It's not just contriving. It, this, is, this is evil towards someone else. This is the kind of man that is listed here for us, described for us by Solomon to his son. And what is the outcome of this? He's continually sowing discord. Or the NIV says, he's always stirs up conflict. Stirs up conflict. That's, that's a little more modern day language, is sowing discord, stirring up conflict. Might help us kind of think about that, of, of what we might have experienced. But sometimes, again, it can be in more of a, a subtle way. Though intentional, subtle. One commentator tells of a story that when he was at a meeting of, of Christian Christians, I don't know if it was a church service or whatever, but he noted a man sitting in the back, and he leaned back in his chair to, to signal to someone else uh, with, his, with his eyes and made kind of an eye roll or some sort of an eye signal as if to say to the, about the man in the front, look at that guy. Look at that moron in the front. Right? And we might think, well, that's, that's, that's pretty subtle. But what, that, what that's doing is it's sending a message to someone else about that man. Right? That's, that's stirring up something. Right? That, that's what we're talking about. You might say, well, that seems awfully small. But if you, if you look at that, that language of he winks with his eye. He signals this to people. He points with his finger. That sounds like it's pretty minor. But the implication or the, the motivation is not so much. The outcome of those things is that there is a sowing of discord, a stirring up of conflict among the brothers. We see that in the next section. God hates the act of sowing discord among the brethren. We see that in verse 19. And the consequences of it are listed. It's not just that God doesn't like it. God, God's going to do something about it. There's judgment that will fall on those who sow discord among the brethren. 
And he, he shows us what it is. It is sure, it is sudden, it is instant, it is complete. Meaning it is beyond remedy. It is um, beyond repair. It is irreversible. Listen to it in verse 15. Therefore, because of verses 12 through 14, climaxing in the discord, calamity, a crushing weight, will fall upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. This calamity is judgment. This is what God thinks about sowing discord. It is evidence that God cares about unity. That God, God doesn't turn, turn, turn his head to the sowing of discord. That Jesus died actually to bring unity to the people of God. Right? Ephesians chapter 2 talks to us about how Jesus, through Jesus, the, the, the wall of, of division, the, the hostility between people has been brought down in Christ. That we're one in Christ. So unity is, is of great importance to God. It's part of what Jesus came to do. Jesus prayed about it in John chapter 17, verse 21, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. How will the world believe that they have sent, that God has sent Jesus? If we are one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Our unity is a testimony of Jesus. Well, Jesus elsewhere says, they'll know us by our love, right? And that is not the prevailing, um, uh, that's not what the world thinks of the church, right? The church, the church is seen as just as disunified as everyone else, right? May it not be so among us. Sowing discord among the brethren threatens the unity that God seeks. God hates it, and he will judge it. Woe to the one who sows discord among the brethren. Solomon then moves into the second description, and he lists out seven things the Lord hates. Follow along in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the one who sows discord among the brethren. Two things to note here. As we said before, you see the connection between the two lists in the repeated vocabulary. You can, you can see that with the words of, of eyes and tongue and hands, fingers, heart, feet, Breathes out, speech, etc. We see the connection. These things that the Lord hates here in this description are the very things embodied by the wicked man, the worthless man in the preceding verses. Right? These are the same things. It's, it's said a little bit differently. It's the same stuff. This is also a literary device. Now, I don't know anything about literary devices. Okay, So I'm, I'm telling you what I've been told that this means. All right? So there are other places in the scriptures, in Proverbs, where it'll say something like three and then four. Here it says six and then seven, right? Six things the Lord hate, seven are abomination. So wh wh why wouldn't he just say seven things the Lord hates and they're all an abomination? Why wouldn't he just say that? What would be the point of saying six and then seven? 
Why would, why would he do that? Well, it's indicating that the last item in the list matters most. It's, it's a culmination of the first six. It's as if the, 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 the seventh one informs the, the six before it. Um, that the seventh one is a product of the first six. This device was used as a way of getting the reader's attention. So as you, you read that list or heard that list read, it might be easy to agree that the first six are abominable. I'll read them again to you. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies. Like, everybody would agree those things are bad. No one in here would, would, would no one would defend those things. None of you would say, no, I don't think the Lord hates that. <laughs> None of you would do that. But then you hear the seventh one, sows discord among the brothers. That just seems so less offensive, doesn't it? It seems so less um, painful. It doesn't seem like it's hurting anyone as much as, uh, I don't know, shedding innocent blood, right? They don't seem equal. And yet God makes them equal. He puts them in a list all together. He's drawing our attention actually to all of them, but specifically to the seventh one, which may be not as easy for us to agree upon. Why does he hate these things? Well, because they all lead to the final one. They all lead to sowing discord. Well, let's look at each one. Haughty eyes. It's a proud look. It's, it's the idea of, uh, I'm better than you, or I could do that better than you, or you're less than me, I'm more than you. Matthew Henry says it this way, there are seven things that God hates. Pride is the first because it is at the bottom of much sin and gives rise to it. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about, or I've heard a preacher talk about, the sin underneath the sin. So there's a sin that, that happens. But why, why did that sin happen? And oftentimes, almost always, there's pride underneath that sin. My heart is rising up. James talks about that. Why are there, why are there fights? Why are there quarrels among you? Is it not your heart that's ready to go to war? You're not, your passions are rising up. You're not getting what you want. It's pride. And we're ready to fight. James goes so far to say, not just fight, but kill. That sounds kind of familiar to our, our passage tonight. Haughty eyes, a proud look. Most of us probably can identify at times in our life where we've been given that look. We've seen that in someone else's eyes, haven't we? The person who looks down on you, thinks they're, they're more than you. But if we're honest, if we're honest about our own heart, whether we've ever shown it to anyone publicly, or it's the haughty look of our own, own heart on the inside, we all can relate here. Pride is a deceiver. Pride blinds us. Sometimes we don't even know we're acting in pride. That's one of the, the crazy things about pride. Number two, a lying tongue. Proverbs talks a lot about lying. Ten other times in the book he refers to this idea of lying. One writer says it this way. Lying is hateful to God because he is the God of truth. Right? You want to know why lying is so bad? You talk to your kids about why lying is so bad? Because <laughs> God's a God of truth, that's why. 
Because God, God, God tells the truth. God, God tells us the truth, and so we are to be truth tellers. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood or blood-stained hands. Uh, this, this is murder, right? This is obvious. This is just murder. Straight up, there's no, there's no secrets here. This is, uh, this is the sixth command, thou shalt not murder. This is um, clear as day, hands that shed innocent blood. In Revelation 21, Revelation 22, tells us the punishment for murderers is a lake of fire. God's not messing around. He hates murderers. Why would he hate murderers? Why, why is that such a thing? If we're all just, you know, descendants from, uh, you know, whatever. No, it's because it's the Imago Dei. Because we all are in the image of God. Because when you strike your brother, you're not striking just flesh and blood. You're striking the very image of God. They're a bearer, they're image bearer of the one true God. That makes every person valuable. Every person, in the womb, out of the womb. Whatever your ethnicity is. If you're a, a citizen or a refugee, it doesn't matter. You still have worth, you still have value, and should be treated as such. Why is the shedding of innocent blood so hated by God? Because God made us in his image. That's why. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. Again, this is speaking to intention. Intentionality of wickedness. They're making plans. They're, they're thoughts and plans to harm and to humiliate. That's the intention of of what's going on here. And God says he hates it. Number five, feet that make haste to run to evil. Literally, hurrying to run to evil. In a hurry to do evil things. Wanting to fulfill your sinful desires quickly. We've never done that. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. Or said maybe more familiarly, thou shalt not bear false witness. The ninth command. When Solomon says that he breathes out lies, it means that he is habitually speaking false testimony. It's not just a one-off. <laughs> the, the thing that God hates is that this is, this is a, a pattern, a, a habit of speaking or bearing false witness. And let's be clear, this is, this, these are lies. Bearing false witness is lying. So he, he, he starts the list with that. He goes to number six with that. The, the mouth is important here. Then we come to the conclusion where he says, and the one who sows discord among the brothers. So the seventh is the abomination. The seventh is the one who sows discord. It's evil. It's disgusting. It's an abhorrence to God. But what is it? What does it mean to sow discord? Well, sowing has the idea of scattering. Has the idea of sending or, or, or stretching out. It has the idea here uh, of stirring or the, the New American Standard talks about spreading strife. This is, uh, this, this discord Another, some other words that might help us. Uh, contention, dissonance, dissension, the threat of split, the lack of agreement and harmony, 
active quarreling, brawling, contesting, resulting in conflict with people and groups. Bible Knowledge Commentary says that this discord, this dissension is caused by hatred. We see that in chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Dissension is caused by an uncontrolled temper in chapter 15, perversity in chapter 16, greed in chapter 28, and anger in chapter 29. This is, um, this sowing discord is, is meant to, to undermine. It's meant to create a conflict, to, to stir something from, from underneath, causing disunity. You've heard that language of stirring the pot, right? It's not the idea of someone um, standing up and creating conflict over, over truth, right? Sometimes there are, there are a lot of people in life who've stood up and created a conflict, right? <laughs> the the uh, Protestant Reformation was a bit of a conflict. Uh, that was over orthodoxy, right? That's not what sowing discord is. <laughs> sowing discord is not uh, about, about standing up for orthodoxy. It's in a sense, it's, it's causing uh, a problem with, within orthodoxy. One of the primary ways I think we see sowing discord in the church is through our words. Though there may be many motivations for how we use our words, still our words, whether it's gossip, you know what gossip is, right? Talking behind other people's backs, not to them. Slander, trying to defame someone, to say something negative in order to harm their character or their, their, uh, their reputation. Again, bearing false witness, that's just straight up telling something that's patently not true. You know it's not true, and you say it anyways. None of those things lead to unity, right? If you're about unity, if you're about what Jesus is about, what, what, what God is about, then these things have no place among believers. James is clear about the power of the tongue. James 3 tells us that the tongue is very powerful. It can create a lot of problems. Some of us personally know how the tongue can create problems for ourselves, right? And oh, how it can in the, the church of God. Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list of the works of the flesh. You know what's listed in the works of the flesh? Let me read it for you. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. That's discord. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those things, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know what that list is set in contrast against? The fruit of the Spirit. Let me read that for you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I mean, peace is the opposite of discord, the opposite of strife. Strife is, is, is causing something, some sort of a conflict. Peace is, is trying to resolve those conflicts. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last days there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Who, who, who causes divisions? Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So it is not a leap for us to say this, that those who sow discord among the brethren call into question their spiritual condition. That if you're someone who seeks to stir the pot within the body of Christ, your spiritual condition is in question. So what do we do? Well, just last week, Pastor Wigan preached from Romans chapter 16. He preached on this, this matter. Verses 17 and 18 say, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions. Create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Of such persons, uh, for such purpose, persons, do not serve the Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What are you supposed to do? We're supposed to, to mark them, to note them, to avoid them. To recognize that those who are causing division are doing it intentionally. They're not doing it accidentally. Now, th th there could be some ignorant things that some of us have done and caused conflict unintentionally. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. And the reason we're not talking about that is because if, if something were like that were to happen, and someone were to come to you and say, hey, you know that you, what you just said was, man, that's a problem. Right? That's, that's causing a, a bit of a problem. We would know that that's not sowing discord upon the response. Because the heart that was, was, was ignorant of the division would say, oh my, that was not my intention at all. Forgive me, repent, return, change, right? Make restitution. But for the one who's actually sowing discord, they continue. Right? That, that's the goal. The goal is conflict. The goal is to create a problem. And Matthew 18 tells us what to do when there's someone in sin, right? To go to them. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. That's the first step. You go and you talk to them. You got a problem with someone, you go and talk to them. If that, doesn't, if that works, uh, Matthew 18 says, we've gained a brother. <laughs> it's, it's done. We don't have to go further. The, the, the issue has been resolved. If it doesn't work, you take two or three. If it doesn't work again, you take the church. If it doesn't work with the church... You let them be as a Gentile or a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says, Let him who has done this, it's talking about the, the man in immorality in 1 Corinthians, let him be removed. He's unrepentant. He's been confronted. Let him be removed from among you. Don't associate. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 10, Drive out the scoffer and strife will go out. And quarreling and abuse will cease. Sowing discord is wicked. Unity is good. Here's Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. Isn't that beautiful? That's what God thinks about, about us, about his church, about his people. It's good and it's pleasant. Unity is God's desire. And I think we, we say this often just to be clear. Unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't everybody has the exact same idea about every little thing. Doesn't mean that we can't have our own opinion. Doesn't mean we can't have our own preference. Doesn't mean that you have to agree with me on everything. That's not what it means. It means that, that our, our hearts are set in the right direction and we're for each other. 
It means we're family. It means we care for one another. It means that we all want the same thing. And we all believe the best about each other. Like that, that, that's what unity looks like. We hear these words in, in Proverbs chapter 6 of the, of the worthless man and the things the Lord hates. Then we hear these words in James 3. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want a harvest of righteousness? It comes through peace. Not through discord, not through conflict, not through getting your own way, not through causing a, a, a fuss. It's through following following the Lord. Proverbs 6 is a warning against the threat to unity. But how would we here, First Baptist, Carroll, Michigan, how do we maintain the unity of the body? You know, what, what's our hope? Ephesians tells us that without Christ, by nature, we want what we want. We follow the, the desires of the flesh. That, that's where we were in our sinful condition. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. But thankfully, Ephesians 2 goes on. And in verses 4 through 7, it tells us this. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. At one point in time, our desires were only for ourselves. But what happened through Christ is he made us alive. There's been a change, a change of heart, truly. He goes on to say that we've been saved by grace, through faith. It's not ourselves, so there's no boasting. Not only are we saved, but we're saved to good works, not by good works. Chapter 2, verse 10. And then he goes on in the next chapter and into chapter 3 and tells us that, 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 that we are one in Christ. That there's a unity that comes through Christ for those who know Christ. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, uh, Paul is, is talking a lot about doctrine. A lot about truths. And then he comes in verses chapters 4 through 6, and he gets very practical, meaning how does that live out? How does that doctrine live? And he comes into chapter 4, I'm getting to it, and he says this, Therefore, my prisoner, therefore I am a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called. He's talking to Christians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How? There's one body. There's one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, that's Jesus. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is possible. We live in a world where it doesn't look like unity is possible. We're too polarized. We have too many, too many ideas that we're dug in on. Too many things that we think are determinative for us. But that's what makes the church so beautiful. That's what makes the church so beautiful. You know that, right? Because it doesn't actually matter what your, your politics are. It doesn't matter what you do for a living or what your socioeconomic level is. That's not why you're here. That's not why we're here. 
We're here because there is one body. That's the church, big C. One spirit, one hope, one Lord Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God. Man, if we can get that right, if we can agree on those things, the other stuff starts to fall away. Division comes, friends, when we stop looking at Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson had it right when he summarized Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and he said this, here's the key to the whole thing. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If that were to be our, our, our heart, that, that what we long for is to look at Jesus, that is, that is unifying. That's something we all can agree on. It doesn't matter what, what your past is or what your ideas. The truth, right? The one, the one God, the one Father, the one body, spirit, Lord, faith, baptism. What if, what if that were the rallying cry of First Baptist Church? What if we, we were able to say, it doesn't actually matter what so-and-so or so-and-so or whatever. That's not what we have in common anyways. What we have in common is one body, one spirit, one Lord, on and on. You want to maintain the unity of the body? That's how we maintain the unity of the body. You want to guard against these six things that the Lord hates, the seven that are abomination to him? We focus on the, the, the one thing. The one thing that matters most, the one thing, the only thing that matters most. We can look at this list and say, oh goodness, I've got to stop doing X or start doing Y. And, and maybe for some of us, we, we need to do some business with the Lord. But the point of those verses is to say that, that these are the things that cause division. It's a threat to our unity. And it's true for us today. It's true for our church. We're going through a, a period of time as a church, a transition. And man, this is, this is the time, right? This is the time that churches struggle. This is the time when, when stuff starts to, to go down. When people start to get ideas of their own or want things a certain way or not a certain way. Want the change, don't want the change. Like the pastor, don't like the pastor, right? This is, this is the moment. This is our moment. We haven't had this moment in 29 years. And this is the moment. And so it's fitting that Pastor Wigan preached on, on division last week. It's fitting that we talked about the gospel this morning. It's fitting that we're looking at Proverbs chapter 6 tonight. Say, it's a real thing. Some of you have been in churches where sowing discord is a real thing. Some of you have you've, you've witnessed it. You've witnessed how that corrupts a church and the problems that ensue because of it. I pray for the unity of our church. I hope you pray for the unity of our church. And one of the ways that we can guard against disunity is by hearing of the reality uh, of what that looks like. What, what accompanies that, that kind of sowing of discord? May it not be numbered in this congregation. May God help us to maintain the unity, the unity of the body of Christ by looking at the one God and Father of all. Let's pray together. Would you stand as we pray? God, um, we recognize that we are in a uh, pretty unique situation, pretty unique time for our church. And there is cause for excitement, 
cause for joy, cause for sorrow over the change of, uh, of leadership and, and thankfulness for so many years, recognizing that, that uh, inevitably uh, life changes and churches change. God, I pray that we would commit even tonight, even from this, this group here, which is only representative of a, a small portion of our church at large, that we would commit to, to maintaining the unity of the body. That we would, by grace, seek to follow you. That we would rally together around one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one God, one Lord. That whatever our disagreements may be, whatever things might come down the road that we might Either we didn't like it that way or we liked it that way. Preferences that we might have. But God, we can believe the best about each other as we even confess here tonight that our hope is in Jesus. May we fix our eyes on Jesus. May he be with us. You know you are. Help us to know that as we move into these next number of weeks and months. We pray that you'll go with us. We give you thanks. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.